Hi, you're listening to Avenue Insights. Any views expressed in this podcast are based on information available at the time and are subject to change without notice. Good afternoon. Good evening, everyone. We're here with our quarterly, our third quarter uh, report that we like to email out. We're just going to discuss it verbally. And there's a lot of things to touch on this time around. Uh, one of the, the main theses or sorry, narratives that we're getting questions about with clients is inflation versus deflation or uh, the supply chain disruptions and, and if this will lead to demand destruction and just what is happening out there. So we're going to talk about all of it. And thank you, Bill. I'll, I'll turn it over to you to, if you wanted to take it away and, and talk a little bit about uh, this inflation versus deflation argument and what we're seeing in terms of rising prices. So, yeah, let's attack that head on. So uh, absolutely straight away media, newspaper, TV. We're now in this inflationary period. What is happening? Are we having last time we've had a real experience about inflation was the 1970s. That's the area that I was brought up in. And so far, we would say this is not necessarily the case. And we've wrote about uh, monetary policy previously that we've actually haven't printed any money yet. We'll, we'll, try, we'll try to cover this as fast and as cleanly as possible. We have not printed any money. We've just borrowed money. Then the central bank has, you know, and the governments have, have then borrowed money from, uh, you know, from the public and from institutions. And then they bought the same bonds back, which then re-injects that money into the financial system. But what we found is it's gotten trapped in the financial system. And the banks don't have anybody to lend it to because our economy is kind of stalled. And so they, that financial, all that trillions of dollars of financing have gone stuck in the banking system. So what, you, sorry, okay, so we, we just attacked it right on. We're getting technical, and that was a very good explanation. But let's, let's even simplify it further. So what you're talking about is the velocity of money continues to collapse, which means you know, incremental dollars not working its way through the system. You're not going to the bank and borrowing money to start a factory, then you're not hiring people that's going to a restaurant, and that incremental dollar is not working its way through the through the financial system, which is extremely deflationary, not inflationary. Yeah, so, so this is, right, so I think it's still, for us to, we could spend half an hour just talking about this one thing because it's so important, but again, so complicated. It's that economic term of pushing on a string, which you can't push the economy into activity. So you put money into the economy, and you've done that, to this central bank of quantitative easing, but there's no place for the money to go. Nobody needs it. So this is the pushing, that's that string analogy. And then what happens is that the dollar that goes, I, you know, I've made it, put it in the bank, the bank lends it to somebody else, that the, the, the dollar you know, circulates through the economy, that's the velocity of that dollar bill, but the, the velocity is slowing down because there's no place for the dollar bill to go. And that, that's the central, idea of, of uh, velocity of money slowing. Absolutely. And, and on the other side, you're seeing central banks continue to be the largest buyer of bonds, suppressing interest rates, which has triggered asset bubbles around the globe. And we can get into that further. But in terms of the average consumer or average client just going out there living their everyday lives saying, well, I go to the grocery store, my food Prices are up. I, I tried to buy a used car. My used car is up. Inflation is ticking up, but a lot of that has to do with supply disruptions. Why don't you touch on that? Yeah. So that's uh, and again, let's let's finish off on on that last key point. And again, our 
our bond presentation would be normally Paul Gardner. I think he's going to do a show just on exactly where bonds are at. But so far over the last 12 months, we've really been making sure we understand what quantitative easing and where we're at. And three years ago, where the last time bond yields ticked up, we would have said in the U.S. yields could have gotten to three and a quarter, three and a half. I was just finishing off on this point. But this time, now that U.S. interest rates, the 10-year yield is around one and a half percent, we think it might get into two and a half, but really there's this hard cap on high interest rates would go. And so that's the backdrop. Now, exactly what you said about, okay, but where are we today? Like in the last month, now we've got this, this key, you know, supply chain bottleneck that's front of the newspapers. And, and what it is is that you can't, because we've shut our economy down for a year and a half, surprise, surprise, you can't get anything. Yes. So you've got supply disruption. That's the first thing. So if if you want something and uh, you want something and I want something and there's only one of it, you got to pay up, got to pay up or I don't get it. And I go home and just say, well, I didn't need that thing. Yeah. And so but so this is the we've got this great slide and hopefully we'll show we've had it in the presentation of saying the incremental uh, pricing surprises incrementally. Every time you turn around, prices are a little higher than they thought you were going to be. But the volume of, of goods transacting is incrementally slower. So that's, that's the worst of both worlds. So you're seeing higher prices because of this dynamic, and you're seeing the economy is, is softening. Right, but so far it's not a monetary issue. We haven't printed too much money. There isn't this cascade of, of uh, you know, just excess dollars that if, if you've got it, you spend it on it, and you, this price goes up, and then wages go up, and, and this cycle so far it's within a, a fixed box for the time being where there's only so much wealth. So if the prices go up, there's only so much they can spend. And, and basically you have to, if oil keeps going up, somebody's got to use less of it. Yeah. And well, you know what? That's a great segue into it. Why don't you just touch on commodity prices in terms of, of whether it's speculation on commodity prices because of this, uh, this argument, whether inflation is transitory or, or not transitory, and also just a tightening uh, of the, sorry, the supply to demand fundamentals, especially on the energy side. Yeah. So again, so so when you're you're working, you know, when the investment meeting each week when we work our way through this, and it's not to try to be alarmist, saying this is a real supply disruption, this is real demand destruction, and sort of, and my my goodness, isn't our economy, you know, really strained at the moment? And then you just go, okay, but no, it just means we have to restructure what we own. And when we go through it, just saying, well, let's make sure we've got exposure to the raw commodities. Let's make sure we have exposure to energy let's have it we've actually got exposure to uranium at the moment and so let's have exposure to the input prices and then when we go through things if we own hard assets and uh so, so it, no in, in an inflationary environment commodities tend to do better than other asset classes you have the infrastructure waiting in our portfolio the real estate part of the portfolio all of that helps in when inflation is ticking up yeah lots of things we can own i think that's the key point and so but but then I'll, you know, I'll throw it back to you. Just it said, but everything is moving so fast, and the thing we immediately found, and we want to make sure we talk about it in the conversations you've been having, is that we, you know, we've built an avenue strategy around being. This is a great company. I want to own it for five years. But things are moving so fast. Bill, there's nothing I rather do than be able to buy an investment or buy a company, sit on it for five years, not have to worry about paying capital gains tax. It realizes its its intrinsic value or goes higher and you get out of that investment at that time. But that's not the type of environment you're in. If you've been watching this volatility, never mind stock market volatility, but individual stock 
market volatility uh, or stock, individual stock volatility, you'll put a target price on something and say, well, I hope Magna goes from A to B over this time period and reaches our target price and we get our expected return out of it. And then boom, six months later or three months later, it, it rips right through that price. So you have to be willing to be active in this environment and take profits. And if you're triggering capital gains, you know, so be it. Oh, and you just see the, that big, big chunks of money. That this money is just rolling through sectors, and it'll be in one sector, and then it'll just roll into. And and I was, you know, the, our feedback a year ago was, you know, that we got is just like, don't ever talk to me about energy stocks ever again. And this is, and it, you're just fast forwarding 12 months, and now it looks like we might have a really tight energy market this winter. Which not, it's it's not that it wasn't necessarily expected, but it's pretty hard to say well how weak it was that coming back that always with a commodity when you've cut back on it for a certain amount of time and it looks like we're going to get back to a previous level of demand but the supply has gone away and it's a commodity and then that just means up it goes when you go through our entire portfolio if you look at i don't, I don't know the exact number 80 90 percent of the sales or the transactions we've made this year we've sold at a higher price than the prices trading at today so it just shows that active uh, management or active risk management, banking profits, being able to be nimble in this type of environment is extremely important. Yeah, and, and I'll throw it back to you. The, the other part that, uh, you know, again, in the investment meeting that you challenge on is saying, okay, but there, there's, with Canada being incrementally unhealthy because of the, the type of challenges we have, I, I've still got this one, uh, one article that I want to write, just sort of saying what bad shape. We're, we're trying to decarbonize our economy, but we're, what the problem is this is what Canada does, and how are you going to do it effectively? Anyway, that, that's, a, that's for another okay, day. Okay, so where you're going with this is international exposure. Yeah, yeah, so, shouldn't we, yeah so shouldn't we get our money outside of Canada? Well, that's, that's, that's a retail stockbroker narrative that's worked out successfully. And quite frankly, the U.S. stock markets has got, have gone from 20% of the global market cap to 50% of the market cap. 60? 60. 60. So it's, it is, but, that's, but that, I'm telling you, that's only in the last couple of months. That means it's a freight train that's moving full speed ahead. And if you're buying the index or you're buying the S&P, you're buying a momentum strategy. And there's nothing wrong with the momentum strategy, but you're not caring about prices of assets. You're not trying to protect the portfolio or building risk management around it. And the way we've preferred to play it is, yes, we've traditionally had 25 to 30% exposure, direct exposure in, in foreign uh, markets like the US, but now we're, we've brought some of that money back to Canada where we're seeing better, better risk reward without the currency risk. And we can still get that international exposure through names like Topicus, which is a European tech consolidator, but it's listed in Canada. Or you can own things like Brookfield that has other assets globally. So we're able to play it that way. But for the when you go through the whole U.S. stock market, when you when you find great businesses, and you say, "Well, I really love to." That's a fantastic business. It's Microsoft or uh, Diageo or these fantastic businesses that are out there. You go wow, these are crazy prices to be paying for these assets. And then when you find something that is a better value, it's probably something you don't want to own. So why don't you touch on just how challenging it is when we go through looking for these type of investments that, that don't meet the avenue criteria on the U.S. side directly? Yeah, I think I'll hit, you know, just hit the two big numbers that are in the portfolio. And just we updated it yesterday, so that's where they're fresh. But 17% of the portfolio is invested directly outside of Canada, 
which seems like a small number, but what we've been saying, the biggest trend we've seen over the last three or four years is most TSX listed Canadian companies are North American companies, yeah. footprints. And we could take our Canadian dollar that is trading at a, at a discount to its purchasing power parity, and we could go into the US and buy directly a US company, but our currency is slightly lower, and then we gotta pay up, and then we gotta pay an expensive amount for a US company, or we can go a inexpensive Canadian company where it has a great business footprint in the US, and we're getting all the cash flow, higher margins, and we paid less for it. So there's, there, there's no need to, to go outside of Canada. So, so that exposure, so almost 50%, it's 47% of the cash flow coming into the portfolio is coming from outside Canada. And we're arguing that we're doing it in a much cheaper way and most efficient way we can. And you're talking about a handful of businesses, 35, 40 businesses that you're buying in the portfolio. You're not looking at this from an institutional point of view or an index point of view where you're trying to you know, spread uh, billions of dollars. Yeah, yeah, the advantage of Avenue is being very specific. We love this business. Brookfield has an incredible portfolio of global properties and assets and something like Topicus, which is, it's just, it, it just came from Canada and it's TSX based, but as exactly you said, it's, it's this incredible hybrid type company of a private equity business managed in, in Europe that's buying up software companies across Europe. And we would love to have that exposure all day long. Or alternatively, some of the US exposure we do have on the tech side, uh, where we've had to dig a little deeper and instead of owning the FANG stocks or the mega cap stocks that are great businesses, once again, but extremely expensive, dig a little deeper and buy some of these mid cap names like a Roper uh, or it ties into both of uh, the things we we're talking about earlier or Citrix where we sold it before it rolled over and banked profits where when it hit our target price. So one being able to look outside of the mega caps to try and try to find relative value and businesses that can still uh, grow and meet our target return and bringing back some of the money to Canada because we're mindful of the currency risk and we're seeing better value. Well, I'll throw out that one tagline. And again, this was the way to, to sort of address the topic in the, in the quarterly letter, which is saying, you, you know, often repeated line, God, the stock market is so expensive. And, you know, we've all had to have those conversations, but how do you yeah, so, handle that? So the stock market is expensive. If you're talking about the index, when people are, are talking about the stock market, if you're talking about the S&P, just to clarify what that means, that means half, almost half of the S&P or 40 some odd percent is in tech and consumer. You're talking about Facebook, you're talking about Apple, you're talking about Microsoft. It is expensive, but you X out these businesses out of the index and it tells a very different story. So you're seeing uh, outside of uh, the overall valuations for the index, when you take out some of these mega cap names, you're seeing better relative value in the US and more specifically in Canada. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's go. Let's. You want to dissect that? What do you? No, no. I think I think that's dead on. No, I think we actually. So, but still, I'll, I'll throw again, throw back to this one last time, just to wrap this up, which is, okay, but we've acknowledged that stocks are relatively expensive. And again, we keep itemizing, and we've we've done this in the last two quarterly reports that just. Uh, IPOs are at record highs. Margin oh, yeah. debts at record highs. Uh, there's there's retail mania going on. So we do ha so we do have a solution for that, which is which is the which is the tail hedge, the tail hedging strategy we're running. Look, the there are negative tailwinds, and it doesn't matter if it's global debt going through two hundred eighty trillion dollars, or you just touched on retail stock mania. And my God, I've my sixteen years in the business, I've never seen 
the amount of clients, friends, family members trading their portfolios at home, whether it's uh, a portfolio of tech stocks, pharma stocks, you know, the so-called sexy stocks. So you're seeing that, which is very typical of late cycle or, or bubble type behavior, this retail stock mania. I do, I do go back to 1999 and it was like that. But well, the, yeah, so I, I was not around, I was not in the business in 99s. But it wasn't as easy to do with technology. It's extraordinary easy, you know, and, and again, I have conversations during the day with my own son, one of them who's really interested in it. And, and uh, the access of information he has you just never had that before. So it's it's incredible. Well, even the apps, like whether it's Robin Hood or you can be riding the subway and buy call options. And it's, it's it, the technology is quite amazing what the retail investor can do. But to your point, look, you've got margin debt that's at record levels. You've seen insane amount of money flow out of fixed income because real rates are negative and you can't sit in cash or fixed income. But there is no sidelines anymore. And all that money's piled into the equity market. So... You know, to say that there's, you know, it's not a bubble, especially with the interest rate environment that we're in and all these dynamics, it, a lot of these things are very typical of late cycle behavior. So getting back to the tail hedge, why don't you give up a little bit of your upside? Because if you're, if you're a traditional investor and you're doing a 60-40 balanced portfolio, you're 60% stocks, 40% in bonds, and you compound at a couple percent in the bond market where inflation's running at four and then you pay taxes, so your real return's negative, you're giving up that upside anyways. You, at least give up some of the upside to buy some of these hedges with a small percentage of your portfolio. We know we can't, our industry likes to believe it can time these declines, whether it's the financial crisis, I don't think anyone predicted it, or COVID, or 2018, the 20% decline in, in December. Just have something in your portfolio in these uncertain times to be able to go up exponentially when you go through one of these but market declines. And you're paying for it anyways. Yeah, yeah but what the, the key point that you touched on, which was, uh, which is exactly it keeps you in it. We do know on a 10-year basis, we have to, the only way for us to compound is to be in great investments and compounding our money. So as soon as we go to the sidelines... We know we're a buyer. We're instantly, as soon as we sell, we know we're getting back in no matter what. So let's make sure we own high quality business that we can stay in. But the tail hedge is another tool that helps us keep us in the portfolio so we can sleep at night. Bill, for the clients I've covered at Avenue and worked with at Avenue and throughout my career, in a normalized environment, I would put five to seven years of liquidity or living expenses, the money they need to draw out of the portfolios into the bond market, knowing they could get a rational rate of return in the past, even if it was four or five. You can't do that anymore. So if you want to get a rate of return, you have to be in the stock market, but you have to do it in the safest way possible and take a moderate amount of risk. And by having these hedges on, and it allows you to stay invested and have more equity exposure without getting worried about getting wiped out on the other end. I don't think you could say it any better than that. Should we wrap it up there? Uh, you know, one thing we should, but there's one. <laughs> <laughs> we should, and we're bouncing around all over the place, but I want to talk about one more thing. Okay. Gold. We missed it. Let's talk talk about gold. So this this one's a little bit confusing to me. I'm interested in, in your thoughts. So you've seen inflation tick up. It should be the perfect storm for, for gold. The companies are wildly profitable when you look at their finan financials, but the, pri the share prices have not gone up. Is it, it's, it's my belief that cryptocurrency and Bitcoin has taken some of the, the luster off of 
gold and silver, precious metals by this whole wave of investing in cryptos. What What is your take on it with this very small portion of our portfolio? Okay, you've got, uh, I'll throw it back to you too to get sure. your at, at the position on this. So we've always come with the avenue, you know, core portfolio being a pension type portfolio. If, uh, you know, my experience working for a couple of years, I worked in, got to work in London and New York, you can build a pension portfolio without any gold. You don't need to. But in Canada, we have this historic precedent. And but we would also argue that gold does, you know, does serve a purpose in a portfolio as a hard asset, uh, s stabilizing the portfolio. But again, it's still, we do it through mining companies and it's a depleting resource business. And so you have to, again, have a sharp pencil in what has historically been not that great a business. So we will rifle shoot high quality companies, try to get the timing right and try to turn these things to just say, can we get our seven, 8% yeah. rate of return out of the individual investments and not worry so much about gold's got to go up? Because right now, if, if Barrick went from $24 to $50, where we think it goes, but then you're probably out of it, you know? So, and so I would bring it back to the point that this is gold is again at a point in time where the businesses are actually at this commodity price genuinely a good investment and they're not usually a good investment does it remind you of it reminds you of energy stocks a year and a half ago a year and a half. you couldn't pay anyone to buy an energy stock and now look where energy stocks and the tightening of the market and oil prices going up you know i don't think it's i i, I don't think gold is going anywhere i think the companies are, are wildly profitable especially the, the few investments that we own in that space and i think you can always make the argument to have five seven eight percent of your portfolio in precious metals yeah, and I think we just want to make sure we have really high quality investments. And I said we we made that uh, you know lots of there's certainly a lot of sweating going on about it, but we we took one of the best gold resources in the in the world, like discoveries that was rocks gold building a mine in Burkina Faso, and over a eight year period it went up a couple hundred percent. So we actually got a rate of return very specifically in that business in the gold industry. And I'd say we would look at it from that point of view first. And just to touch in on that, the, the number that you brought out, right now the overall cryptocurrency space is around $2 trillion. And before you had $2 trillion, probably that, that speculative money would have gone very hard in this type of uh, in inflation perception as I said, we, d we don't believe we really have monetary inflation yet, but we certainly have an inflation where people are getting worried about it and where you're trying to hoard things, and gold is one of those things that does get hoarded. Can you see the, the few gold investments that we own being the dividend payers of the future with yeah. the type of cash flow they're, they're throwing off at these levels? And that's what's happening. So you're actually able to get Barrick with, with a which much better than a bond yield, and you have that optionality to it, which I think is fantastic. I mean, you've never had that before. So I would say we're actually very enthusiastic about our, our gold positions right now. But every day, it's, it's still a gold company, and you're following them you know, quarter to quarter pretty carefully. And, and sorry, not to bring this full circle once again back to the beginning, just this whole inflation versus deflation argument. What is your, to be as clear as possible, what do you think this inflation is transitory or at some point you'll see, I think the number was four, four and a half percent. You're seeing this tick up over yeah. over the last 12 months with the supply chains normalizing. I, I, I can't see the input costs right. might not go so, down on the commodity our, side. I'll give our consensus. Maybe we'll finish on this. Our consensus view at the moment, I'll speak for all of us, is that you will get prices. So spiraling inflation is four goes up this year, four goes up next year, then it goes six, then it goes seven, and it continually keeps inflation keeps 
inflating and it keeps it almost sort of increasing the inflate. That's the one you were really worried about. This feels like an awful lot of prices were held up excessively low because of China, just in time management. And we need to re-rate all prices to a new higher level that will incentivize people to go back to work and, you know, and money to turn over. But we need to go up 4% this year, maybe four or 5% and that prices across the board probably need to go up 10% and then they're going to sit at 10%. So it's, it's, but it's not like they're going up and coming down. They're just like a lot of, you know, tangible goods need to be re-rated because they were artificially cheap and they need to go up. All inflation numbers needs to go up. And even the, and the extraordinary thing in the last uh, three months is that rent has gone up. And so because of housing value is going to go up, well, unfortunately, at some point rents go up as well. And so they need to go up, but then they're probably going to stay up at a higher level and everything just sort of plateaus, plateaus and then you're back to a 2% inflation rate. But everything's got to be re-rated up. That is our latest thinking on the topic. But probably for the next year and a half, you will have this inflationary pressure. That was as clear as clear can be. So we'll end it on that. And if anyone has any questions or feedback, always feel free. I get some great emails after this, by the way. Feel free to, to email us or call us and let us know what you think or any questions on your mind or things that we're not addressing that you want to have addressed. Let's talk about it. Take care. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. You can find us on AvenueInvestment.com where you can learn more about the topics discussed today at our blog or subscribe for updates to our content. You can also follow us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.